Well, good morning. How are you this morning? All right. Welcome to those of you online as well. We're glad you're with us. So this is a um, man named Reza, Reza Bellucci, I think John's brother, um, unknown brother. But he is an American, he is an athlete, he is an avid runner, but he is famous for something that happened a few weeks ago. Um, He called this the hydropod, and he decided that he was going to take this from the United States of America across the Atlantic Ocean to England. And um, his hydropod is basically a giant hamster wheel. The Coast Guard, when they picked him up on international waters, um, called it the hamster wheel of death. But he decided to take this, and he ended up about 70 miles off the coast of Georgia when he was pulled in by the Coast Guard and took five days to basically convince him that you're going to come back to America. So I don't know if they like just strapped a rope on and drug it back on the back of a ship or how they got him back, but they asked him um, for registration papers while he was on his ship, and he said, well, I can't find them. Probably all the, the rooms in that giant vessel. <laughs> but it, it's one of those ideas, it's kind of crazy to think about someone deciding, I'm going to hop in that, and I'm going to basically run and wheel myself across the ocean. Right? He's got a vessel that can obviously can do it, but it relies a lot on his strength and stamina and ability to be able to do that. Right? That's probably not an easy task. That's not like walking around the block. Right? And so Paul, in this letter, is writing to the churches in Galatia, and he says, hey, there's a problem with this gospel that you're preaching. Right? You, you have Jesus that's a part of it, but so much of what you believe about this gospel relies on your strength and your ability and your knowledge of the truth. Right? The, the vessel of Christ is there, but you're relying a lot on yourself. Right? It's great that you believe in Jesus, but there are some other things you must do if you want to be a part of this kingdom. And these other Christians and other Jewish leaders are telling people, yeah, it's great that Jesus is a part of your story, but you can't abandon the law because the law is what makes you Jewish. Right? That's, the, that's what it means to be a Jew, is to be obedient to this law. And you can't abandon it. And so he's battling this group of people saying Paul is watering down his gospel. He, he's making it really easy by taking out the law and not making people follow that and just saying it's all about Jesus. And Paul is trying to defend with a very Jesus Jesus-centered gospel, right? This is all about Christ, and it is all about what Christ is done and is doing. 
And he wants them to know, as we kind of talked about last week, he wants them to know and understand this wasn't something that he just decided he would start teaching. This wasn't something that he's heard from other people. This was something that Jesus himself gave him. So we're going to jump back into this letter, chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Verse 13. For you have heard my previous way of, or in my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, um, my people, and I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. So he's, he's been following Jesus because... I won't do that to you again this, like last week. Um, he's been following Jesus because Jesus literally came to him, appeared to him. And he says, I'm very zealous about this. And, and for Jewish people, this zealous faith was so, so important. Think of Elijah slaughtering the prophets of Baal. Like, that's what it means to be a zealous Jew on fire for God. And so Paul's role, he feels like in this world, is to stop the message of Jesus. To stop the church from growing and expanding. And the first time we encounter him, we talked a little bit about it last week, the first time we encounter Paul, his name is not actually Paul. It's Saul. And you go back to this story in in chapter 8. They've just stoned and killed a man named Stephen after he gave this speech, this sermon about all that Christ has done. And so it says, Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And it goes on, verse 2 and 3. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So he's actively trying to stop the message of Jesus from going out. He's actively trying to stop. And Paul's past is going to be a problem in his ministry, especially as he begins his ministry, because people are going to be afraid of his past. But, but we talked about just a, little, a few minutes ago how God is working all things for good, and it's seems impossible to look at something like that and think, how is God working this for good? How is God moving in this and through this? But when Jesus came, and he, before he ascended, he said to his disciples, I want you to go into all the world, right? And I want you to teach people, I want you to baptize them, make disciples of all nations. And then before he ascends 
He sends this message to the church, and it's recorded in Acts. And he tells them, I want you to wait for my spirit. I want you to wait here in Jerusalem for my spirit. And when we finally get to chapter 8 in Acts, where Stephen is stoned, Stephen is killed. We'll just, it's 2020, I should probably clarify that. Where Stephen is killed. No, no one got that. Sorry. Um, my mind goes in terrible places. I'm sorry. <laughs> just like forget the last 30 seconds of this sermon. Sorry. But the church is stuck. Right? They were supposed to go into all the world. And when Stephen is killed, when, when Paul is persecuting the church, it's been seven, eight, nine years since Jesus ascended back into heaven. It's been seven, eight, nine years since the Spirit of God came on them at Pentecost and the church was born. And where is the church? It's still in Jerusalem. It's stuck there. And it won't leave. And it's Paul's persecution of the church that scatters the church, that sends them into Judea, that sends them into Samaria. And it's almost like they're sitting here saying, okay, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're all looking at each other. We're, we're good. We're here in Jerusalem where we're supposed to be. And God's saying, wait, wait, wait. You're supposed to be going out into this world. And you're not. You're sitting here. And Paul, it seems, is used to move the church out of the place that they're the most comfortable Somehow, he works something that's so bad to really allow them to be his witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He relies on this. And we see Paul's zealousness coming out and somehow doing something good for the kingdom. And then what we see just a bit later, after the church is scattered, that Paul has this, or Saul at this time, has this encounter. Right? As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up. And go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. God begins Saul's story as Saul is scattering the church. He uses him to scatter the church. 
And now he's going to use him to build the church. He uses him to scatter the church. And now he's using him to build it. And for Paul, it's so essential that they get their theology right. Not because other people have told him this is what matters and this is what's important, but because he came face to face with Jesus and his life was changed forever. And I think one of the things that Paul would say to these Christians is sometimes things have to be torn down before they, have to be, before they can be built back up. Right? Their theology needed to be torn down and the foundation needed to, be, needed to be reestablished before it could be built back up. Right? Because it's not Jesus and the law is how we find freedom. It's simply in Jesus. And so we need to tear the stuff down that does not matter and that's not helpful to find the foundation that is Christ so that we can build it back up like it should be built. Right? Your marriage might be struggling, but some things need to be torn down before they can be built back up. But you have to get the foundation right. Your finances might be in a really bad place. But sometimes things have to be torn down before they can be built back up. But you've got to get the foundation right. The anxiety, the depression may seem overwhelming. But things in your life might have to be torn down before they can be built back up. But you've got to make sure the foundation is right. Some things might have to be torn down before they can be built back up. And so for Paul, this is essential to what it means to know and follow Jesus. That it's not Jesus plus anything that we find freedom we find hope in. Right? Paul's life was torn apart in a single moment on the road to Damascus. Everything he knew, everything he was certain of, everything he was confident in was completely stripped away. And in the end, all he saw was Jesus. And in seeing him, lost his ability to see. And you think, how can Paul be used by God knowing his story, knowing what he was doing, knowing how feared he was? How is it possible that God could somehow use him? And I think Paul has a beautiful answer. Right? Verse 15. Um, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me 
by His grace. Is it possible that God set Him apart? Because that, that brings up some really important theological questions. Right? Because it's, it's basically saying God chose Paul for a purpose. And it, it brings up the question, does God choose some people and not choose others? Does God choose some people to believe and follow Him and not choose others? Does He choose some people to be His ambassadors and His ministers and His witnesses and not choose others? That's a really important question. Do you have a choice to follow? And I think Paul would say, absolutely, you have a choice. And when I say he chose me or he set me apart from the beginning of my story and from my life, he did the same for you as well. He chose you. He called you. But the question is, would you see and would you hear? Or, when you're confronted with Jesus, would you just continue on? Does God choose some people and not others? I'd say no. He chooses everyone. But there are times that we choose others and other things and other saviors. <clears throat> instead of Jesus. The choice is mine. The choice is yours. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, He called me by His grace. Right? Think about everything I've done. Think about where I've been. It was grace. The Greek word, charis. And it means unmerited favor. Like, I didn't deserve it. I was given this amazing grace. I was given the opportunity to follow. So, Paul is defending the gospel by making sure people know and understand that it is all about Jesus. Right? So God set me apart and He called me by His grace, but He was pleased to reveal His Son in me in order that, so that, continue on, so that I might preach Him, Jesus, among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult with a human being. So God has called Him. He set Him apart for a purpose. What is that purpose? So that I can tell people about Jesus. I can tell people. Paul's past magnifies his amazing grace. 
You can say, how, how in the world could God use Paul? How could He use him? How could He call him? And Paul would say it's simply by grace. That's the only answer I have. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I can't earn it. I can't deserve it. It is simply by grace. And so this watered-down gospel that Paul is trying to stop is that Jesus plus the law is salvation, but Paul's gospel is this Jesus-centered gospel, this gospel of grace. That the center of the story of Jesus, at the center of the story of the church that is being built, is Jesus. And it is the good news that He is now King, that He is Messiah, and that He reigns over all the earth. And He talks next in, in chapter 2 about this battle. And I, I, I'll be honest, like part of me just is like, alright, we just kind of want to fast forward through this whole intro, chapter 1s or 2, and let's really get to the good stuff. Right? But there's some really good stuff here. So in chapter... Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, A matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So there are some people that are coming to try to figure out what we're doing wrong. Right? The, the police. The religion police. Making sure they got it right. Make sure they're not stepping out of line. Because we're really concerned about what everyone else is doing. And they say, he says, they're trying to make me a slave again. A slave to what? A slave to the law. But for Paul, he would say, I'm a slave to Christ. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. And on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. And skipping down to verse 10, all they asked was that I sh or we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing we had been eager to do all along. They're basically putting down Paul and saying, well, he got this message wrong and he got it from somewhere else. And Paul's response is, no, I got it from Jesus. He is the foundation of everything. Right? Because for Paul, the gospel was his identity. And if you lose sight of the identity, we said this last week, if you lose sight of the identity you've been given vertically, you will start searching for it everywhere horizontally. You'll start allowing everyone else to tell you who you are. Everyone else to tell you who you're supposed to be. Everyone else to tell you what should be important. But for Paul, everything he knows is based on his relationship 
with Christ because he saw Jesus and his life was changed. That's Paul's story. And as I was thinking about his story, I, I thought, I'm, I'm betting that that day on the road to Damascus was the worst day of Paul's life up until that point. Because on that road, he was so certain of what he was doing. He was so confident in himself that he was doing the right thing. So confident that he was honoring God. So sure of himself. So sure of his knowledge. And in an instant, everything was stripped away. And he was blinded and could not see. Everything changed in a single moment. I wonder if it's possible that the darkest day of Paul's life became his greatest blessing. I wonder if the darkest day, quite literally, of his life became the greatest blessing. Now wonder if the same could be true for you and I. Is it possible that what seems like the darkest day of your life could become the biggest blessing? When a diagnosis changes everything. When you realize you're in over your head. When you realize your world is crumbling. When you realize you finally hit rock bottom. I wonder if Christ and the power of Christ in this world is powerful enough to redeem and make something good when everything around you is broken. Because I wonder if in a way it's just simply tearing down what needs to be torn down in order that it could be built back up. And as painful as it is, it seems like it's those moments when everything is stripped away that we again find ourselves back on the foundation that is Christ. Because in those moments, in those darkest days, it seems like His light shines the brightest. And I wonder if Paul's losing his sight led to him gaining his vision. That day he lost his sight, the day that he lost everything he was certain of, 
if that was the day that he truly was able to see. To see something bigger. See, here's the thing. I know for a fact that there are people in this room right now who feel like they're in their darkest day. And you feel like your marriage or your finances or your family your faith are crumbling. And I would just simply say, you've got to get the foundation right if it's going to be rebuilt. Keep going. Hang in there. Hold on to Christ. Keep going. Hang in there. Hold on to Christ. Father, thank you for this day. And Father, we thank you for these letters that have been preserved for us. That we see so much beauty. We see so much truth. And Father, we find so much hope. And Father, I just want to pray for those this morning who are struggling. Whether it's their marriage or their family or their finances, depression, anxiety. Father, whatever it is in this moment, Father, I pray that they would see You and they would find hope in Jesus, Your Son. And Father, they would hear Your words that they belong and that they are loved and they are accepted in Christ. Father, today, would you give us the strength to continue, the strength to put one foot in front of the other. And Father, trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.